Welcome to the Game Changers podcast. We are your hosts, Associate Professor of Education and Enterprise, Philip Cummins, and prominent educational thought leader, Adriano Prado. The Game Changers podcast aims to not only put a spotlight on the innovative ideas shaping the landscape of 21st century schooling, but to enter into a deep dialogue with those brave pioneers, the true game changers in education, those individuals that don't wait for permission, leaders in education who are actually courageous enough to make real change in their learning community as they foster the growth of each young person in their care to ultimately thrive in this new world environment. These are their stories. You know, I began teaching in 1988. I think over the 35 years, ugh, 35 years that I've been teaching, I think the biggest change in education has been that we take student voice seriously now. It's been a quiet revolution that's gone in the background. It's built on a whole layer of understanding about the importance in relationships. Dr. Lisa Landy, the Senior Director of Field Services at the Kuali Institute for School Voice and Aspirations, knows more about this than pretty much anybody else on the planet. She's a chalky, she's taught high school, she's a college professor, she's the director of several large-scale school reform projects, she's written books, she's everything, and she's just our type of person. I'm excited, I can't wait, let's go. Before we start our conversation with today's Game Changers guest, Phil, can you share with our audience a little insight into our Series 12 sponsor? Thanks, Adriano. Of course, we are proud to be partnered with the education team of the Museum of Australian Democracy at Old Parliament House in Canberra, Australia's capital city. Looking for civics and citizenship experiences and resources to empower voice and agency in your Australian classroom? The MOAD Learning Team have got you covered with on-site and online experiences for teachers and young people of all ages. Visit MOAD Learning at M-O-A-D-O-P-H dot gov dot A-U forward slash learning. That's M-O-A-D-O-P-H dot gov dot A-U forward slash learning. Bill, it is so wonderful to be with you again. And as I was sitting here listening to your introduction, I couldn't help but think, 1988, hmm, oh, I was in year 11. That's how much younger I am, uh, Phil, and, and youthful and energetic and ready to go. And I remember in year 11, I think I was even cutting classes to go off on a Wednesday night to Boogie Wonderland uh, at Checkpoint Charlie, a nightclub here in Melbourne and having a good time. Can't believe I'm divulging that on, on public airways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That would just make you ageist by just pointing things out like that, wouldn't it now, mate? Well, so well just, it might. You know, but, but, but what it, what it now <laughs> does confirm for me is why you keep referring to it as chalky because back then, no doubt, you still use that antiquated piece of technology of chalk and a blackboard. We did, we did. And, we did. and ho hopefully, hopefully in today's modern age, uh, no one is inhaling the, the, the dust and, the, and, the, and those poor asthmatics in those rooms. Anyway, enough of this nonsense. Let's get to our wonderful guest. Uh, uh, Lisa, it is wonderful to have you on the Game Changers Series 12, where we're looking at the transformation of permission and educating for, for voice, agency and advocacy. I'm going to ask you the very first question that we ask all of our guests, and that is tell us a little bit about your story and how you've gotten to where you are today. Thanks so much for the opportunity to jump in and have this conversation with you guys. I've just recently become aware of your podcast, so I'm slowly working my way back through your amazing catalog. So many great conversations with friends and colleagues I've had the opportunity to work with, Michael Fullen, Jim Knight, both great conversations and getting exposed to some new colleagues of yours in Australia that I haven't had the chance to learn from before and just find every conversation so engaging and stretching my thinking. So thanks for the work that you guys are doing. 
I'm a teacher at heart. I was a classroom teacher for a long time and just legitimately loved every minute, even the hard ones that I got to spend in a classroom full of students. And as you said earlier, then a, a college professor for a while, had the opportunity to work on a number of large scale reform projects and worked for a comprehensive center through the U.S. Department of Education, working with state departments and how they were organizing their systems of support for students. And I think that really sparked my interest in, in systems. Before, my, my experience had been in one school at a time and just being really laser focused on that school. But I then just got really intrigued by this whole concept of systems reform, which I have heard you guys talk about multiple times and those a shared passion for all of us. So that kind of then became my quest and thinking, how can what I see in this one amazing school be replicated so that all students are experiencing those bright spots that we see, the things that we all get really excited that we would call innovative, um, how, do, how do we really replicate that and make it so in, in every school? So that's what my moral imperative has become is how can, how can I be a part of helping every classroom to be one that I would want my own three children to learn in? They're, they're all grown now. My oldest is studying to be a teacher, um, but that's still what's in my mind and in my heart is how do we help make every classroom one that we would want our own children to learn in? It's, uh, it's so energizing to sit here and, and listen to, to a passionate educator who is deeply committed to something greater than ourselves. And, and that is how we can continue to support young people to ultimately thrive, uh, you know, for their today and, of course, for their tomorrow. Listening to you share this journey of where you are, have come from and where you are today, can you give our, our listeners a little bit of an insight of when you made up that moment to become a teacher and what was it about the profession that appealed to you in that early stage? Yeah, I think it would probably be that that story that I've heard from a number of teachers. I don't think I'm alone in this, where I had some really great ones that had a profound impact on my life. Unfortunately, I also had some that I would not put in that same category. Mm. And so it was both the examples and the non-examples um, and just being passionate about wanting to play that same type of role in the lives of, of others. So that's really what drew me to the profession. I know some get passionate about a content area or some area of study, and they just really want to impart that knowledge on the next generation of people. But for me, it was always about the student and the relationship between the teacher and the student. And I love what you guys have talked about related to character and how that's the real purpose of school. And I think that was always just a heart match for me, mm -hmm. the opportunity to be part of developing character in the next generations of humans. That, thanks for sharing, uh, you know, that, that early moment of influence. Um, and, and it's great that that the people that influence you, of course, were people in the profession. And of course, we learn so much about the ones that we don't connect with, about how we want to do it and do it differently. I want to stay on this conversation around influence for a moment. So much of your extraordinary work with the, the Qualia Institute ha has been about influencing educators and, and, ed and education across the globe, especially around the belief that every student and staff member embodies this kind of endless potential. Along your journey now, who has maintained your influence and why has that happened? Yeah, man, there are so many greats and giants that have <laughs> that have had a profound influence on me. I mentioned a couple earlier. Yes, um, you know the work of Michael Fullan. I think he's influenced so many of us, and I've heard you guys speak about him and with him numerous times. Um, love the work of Jim Knight, what he's done around coaching and great conversations, and most notably, I just love that 
concept that he talks about, about conversations being life-giving. And I think about that every day in every conversation I have with educators. Is this a life-giving conversation that is having a positive, positive impact? But Certainly, I would be remiss without giving massive credit to Dr. Russ Qualia and the impact that he has had on my life um, in in so many ways. Um, He is, I think, one of the most genuine humans on the planet. I think he's in this work for all the right reasons. I consider it such a privilege. Every day, I've been working for him for a long time now, and I still just consider it to be such a privilege that I get to continue to learn from him on a regular basis. And I think what I'm most struck by, he has these three fundamental beliefs that drive himself as a human and drives the Institute's work. The first is that students are the potential, not the problem. And yes, we know that students come to us with loads of challenges and problems, but we see it as our great privilege that we get to help them navigate those challenges to meet their fullest potential. And I just love that subtle mind shift to really think about students as the potential. They're not the problem. The second is that we genuinely believe that students have something to teach us. And Dr. Russ Qualia models that in every interaction I've ever seen him have in a school or with educators, whether it's an audience of 5,000 or a small focus group within a school. It's always the question, what are we learning from students? And of course, everybody would say, yes, I believe we have things to learn from students, but do our practices and behaviors then actually demonstrate that that's what we believe in our core and that we're acting upon that? And the third is we we believe that working with students is the only way forward and that it can't be an us and a them. It can't be adults doing school to students. It has to be us doing school with students and that we really work in deep partnership with one another. So, um, so yes, of, of course, at the top of the list, Dr. Russ Qualia has just had such a profound impact on me and it's a real privilege to be part of his team. Thank you again for, for sharing those who, who have influenced you on the journey, but also for just sharing then that insight into the, the thinking uh, that, that has grown from uh, the, the Qualia Institute. What you're sharing with our audience is deeply centred into the power of permission. If we are going to be co-authors with the young people in our care, we, we have to grant, because we're the adults at the moment, we have to create the space and create that permission for that space to be fostered uh, for young people to step into their own agency. For me, the power of the word permission is the, is the granting of oneself the kind of formal consent to do something, right? Um, it's the kind of necessary yes towards a real movement, a uh, purposeful action, and, and this ultimately self-actualization. When was there a time in your career where you didn't wait for permission and you simply did something? Mm-hmm. Gosh, the, the first thing that comes to mind is I feel like that's been my entire career. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Just thinking about the whole act first, ask for permission later. Of course, I've, I've never been seeking to get in trouble on purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, but sometimes I think the whole permission seeking, we use that as kind of a crutch to not ask like, oh, I can't do this because I need to wait for somebody to say it's okay. Oh, well, I can't do that because there's this whole... 12-step permission-seeking process that I'm going to have to go through first. Um, now, of course, we all have bosses and policies and procedures that we need need to follow, and I'm, I'm not looking to ignore those. I think they're often there for a good reason. Um, but I Possibly. think there's so much room to really be able to navigate within whatever procedures are set for you. Um, and that's, I guess, what I've always been trying to think about how to do. Like, um, I, I'll think I'll give you one example. This a school that I taught in, we had a really ineffective system for scheduling. And it was one of those things. That's just the only way that it had ever been done. And so it was really a gatekeeping 
scheduling structure where it kept students who needed certain classes from being able to access them. The students who needed those classes the most could not access them. So I created a new schedule. So I didn't just complain about it or wait for somebody else to fix it, but showed another possibility. And I, I think we can talk in a moment about how we define voice, but one of our big pieces of our definition is coming to the table with realistic suggestions that are for the good of the whole. And so I, I think that's been my thing. Rather than waiting to permission seek or get granted permission to create ideas and examples of what it could look like and bring that to the table um, for wherever those permissions do need to be granted. Lisa, sitting here listening to you, there's, there's so much that we could we, we could talk for hours and hours and hours, I'm sure. Um, you, you mentioned just a wee while back your memory of having a great teacher and, you know, everyone can remember having a great teacher. Everyone can remember having a terrible teacher, et cetera, et cetera. The obvious question I'll ask you is what do great teachers do? I, I want to flip that to start with. What do you learn from having a terrible teacher? <laughs> I think what I have ended up learning from the not so great experiences was that void that you feel when there's not a connection, the lack of motivation that you feel when there's not a relationship that exists, and wanting to make sure that in every opportunity I have to work with teachers to really focus on how important those things are. We focus on three key principles, guiding principles, we call them in our work, self-worth, engagement, and purpose. And we, we tackle them in that order. Our data even suggests that they are very logically ordered. So we begin with self-worth. I guess I, in a way, it's kind of like the, the same concept as Maslow's hierarchy of needs. We first need to deal with self-worth and let students know that they matter, that they belong before we can really maximize engagement and get them to care about the content that we're teaching. And then the third guiding principle for us is purpose. Well, how can we help develop purpose in life for students, both in their learning and just in their life in general, if they aren't engaged and if they don't have self-worth and that they know that they matter? So I guess part of what I learned from those non-examples was what I wanted to focus on. And I want to be an educator and I want to help support other educators in being ones who can help cultivate self-worth in students, meaningfully engage them in the classroom and help them develop very meaningful purpose for their life and learning. Yeah, all of that stuff around purpose is just, that just greases my wheels. All of our research tells us that, you know, teachers want to make a difference. They think they do that in at least four different ways. Some teachers, it's about modelling who they are. Other teachers, it's about being a technician, doing a good job. Other teachers, it's about sharing their passion. And for other teachers, it's about preparing kids to have success in the world. All of that, of course, is about trying to connect teacher purpose to a student's inner purpose. Teachers who make a difference in the lives of kids are teachers who help them unlock a sense of purpose more than anything else. So we love that. And I think that, that alignment between self-worth and what we would call the, the civic character of belonging and engagement, which is about the performance character that unlocks, you know, that fulfills potential and, and purpose, which is essentially about your sense that you're doing good and right in the world, which is, of course, moral character. I mean, again, that, there's lovely, lovely alignment between the work that you're doing and our own research into what the character of, a, of, a, of an excellent education is and what is an education for character. Let's go to student voice because you, you, you want to go there. We've literally just done some work based on 15 years of research in schools all around the world. And we're starting to get a sense about what we're seeing as the notion of voice. I want to throw something at you first, and then I want you to tell me what you think it is, and then let's pull it all apart and put it all back together. So we think that voice is very much about, it begins with connecting with community to discover your identity. 
it's then about growing in that civic character of belonging and, and emphasis on respect and civility and courtesy. And then it's telling a story, therefore, with a voice that's both authentic to yourself and that also honours your obligation to others. So I guess our understanding of voice is that no voice exists in a vacuum and it's not all about me. You know, you have to go on a journey from me to you to us. So therefore, there is always the Ubuntu. There is always the interdependence in it. So it's, there's the understanding that your voice, you need to try and find your voice, but your voice is one of many and you need to work out where it fits in. That's the sort of conclusion we'd literally just come to in, in our work. And we're going to be talking with our School for Tomorrow members about that over the next few months. Tell us where you've landed at the Qualia Institute around the notion of voice. So just listening to you talk right now, um, I I feel like we must be professionally related, even though we've just met today. <laughs> and I, I felt this way, actually, when I listened to your, your opening episode for season 12, there were so many things you were saying and so many of the concepts that, that you're after that are just so in alignment with, with our belief set. So it's, it's always a privilege to have conversation with people who are exploring and coming to similar conclusions in their research and, and field work. Um, so I guess we'll start with sharing our definition for voice, which is based on three parts. The first is sharing thoughts and opinions in an environment that's underpinned by trust and respect. And I think that sounds pretty, pretty basic, pretty easy to wrap your heads around. And when we do this work with students, because by the way, everything that we research, everything we write and develop is not just to be shared with teachers and, and adult educators. We think it's so important that we have a common language. So anything, any piece of our framework that we teach grownups, we teach to students as well, um, including this definition. And that part, students tend to really pretty easily wrap their brains around. They're like, yeah, that's my voice. It's about me sharing my thoughts and ideas. And often it comes out in a way of telling adults what I want you to do for me. <laughs> um, so the next two parts of our definition, I think, become really important for taking it from just that base of sharing my thoughts and ideas to what comes next. So the second part is sharing realistic suggestions that are for the good of the whole. And that good of the whole, I think, really connects to what you were just talking about, about community identity and it being about more than just yourself. Because it is really easy for me to share ideas that are good just for me. But to come up with realistic ideas that are going to be good for everybody, that's a lot more challenging, especially when we get into the adolescent years. And I think part of that is just a function of where we are at in our global society. And we're never out to shame kids about their love for technology. It just is what it is. And it's a, a massive part of their life. And a lot of good can come out of it as well. But there are also some challenges. You know, if you think about, if you think about the shift that has happened as a result of the algorithms that are out there in society and the content that it naturally brings to, to children and to youth. They can sit on TikTok and literally for unlimited hours have information brought to them that the algorithm knows they will like. It's the same for us as adults. We get brought more music, more things to our news feed that is already like what we've read and what we have liked. And don't even get me started on online shopping. I mean, every time I log on to Amazon, it's like, hey, Lisa, we think you'd like to buy this. And I'm like, yes, I would. How yeah, did you Lisa, know? Lisa, <laughs> you know? Lisa, Lisa, can I tell you that on my Instagram, I get more pictures of steaks being cooked yes. and steaks about to be cooked. It's, it's, it's terrifying, <laughs> isn't it? So what does this tell us about you? You must really love a good steak. I am a, a carnivore. There's no doubt about that. <laughs> that's great. And, and there's actually something that's pretty fantastic about this, but I think we also have to be aware that what is happening is it's causing this narrowing of focus because the world brings us more to our phone and our doorstep and our face all day long 
things that we already like. So we have to be really intentional more than ever, I believe, in teaching students skills to also look outward, to think for the good of the whole, to not just think about what I like or how something is going to impact me, but how we look outward to the good of the whole. And then real quickly, the third part of our definition, and we can break this down more if you want, is accepting responsibility, not only for the things that we say, but also what needs to be done. So for us, voice is a very action-oriented thing. It is not just about sitting back and talking and sharing what I think. It's then figuring out what is the action that I'm going to take based on the words that I have said. So it becomes very much about, uh, about the doing. So if it's action-oriented and part of the world that we live in today is we've got this algorithm feeding us stuff, which is about us, then we need to do something to ensure that we can encounter the other as Adriano would, would would always emphasize to me and, and to us and to our listeners and to our readers. Part of the challenge that we have in our modern world today, it, I think it comes back to that principle of trust that you talked about earlier that seems so simple and is yet so complicated. That when you have a generation of young people who really don't trust older people and they're looking at what older people have done to the world and they're looking at it through an ideological lens all the time and it's a lens which is intolerant of the imperfections of others, which therefore encourages them to go into ever more rarefied and ever more separated echo chambers of views that agree with their own. Um, you wrote an article with Russell um, fairly recently about stepping into a new normal and what a new normal looks like. How can we help teachers to encourage students in this new normal to step outside of their lane, not to stay in their lane, but to go into other people's lanes and, and, to, and to deal with the messiness and the imperfections and the frustrations and the gloriousness of humanity that is all tied up in a knot with each other. Yeah, you bring up such a good point. It's um, it's almost like we're losing this ability to have uh, discourse and really and disagree in a respectful way with one another and see value in learning from other perspectives. So it seems like right now the norm is pick a polarized side, dig in, and then mm. just talk really angrily about it. So we don't even always know why we're angry, but that's just the thing to yep. do. Like be polarized and never budge and just be really aggressive about whatever your viewpoint is. So we do a lot of work with teachers and with students, um, particularly around the skill of listening, which might sound very basic, but I think it's something so important for us to address. And when we do work around the skill of listening, the biggest part that we are focusing on is listening to perspectives other than your own, because it is very easy for all of us, whether you are an elementary student, a middle schooler, an adult, it is easy to listen to the people who agree with you. This conversation today is a perfect example. I could talk to you guys forever. I could listen to you talk about your work because we are so closely in alignment with one another. It's much more challenging to intentionally listen with the intent to learn something. And kids tell us all the time that adults are great at fake listening, their words, not mine. And they call it fake listening. And they're like, yeah, people will ask you a question and they're nodding their head going, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. But they don't really want to hear what you have to say. They absolutely know when genuine listening is happening or not. I think we also know that as adults. So if I'm really listening with the intent to seek out a perspective different than my own and learn something from it, I have to be really genuine in that endeavor. Now, that doesn't mean that I have to change my opinion. If this is about something that's a core belief for me, 
listening to and learning from a different perspective doesn't mean I have to be convinced or change something that I really believe in, but I can benefit greatly from learning why someone thinks differently. And it helps us to engage differently as humans when we understand the perspectives that might be different from our own. And then our ultimate goal is that we we listen to and we learn from others with different perspectives, and then we find ways to lead together. For us, leadership is just not a solo endeavor. It's something that has to be done in partnership, particularly between adults and students, and even between people who have vastly differing perspectives. And so much of what you're sharing with us, you know, really heroes, the value of of active listening to simply understand, not respond in that exchange moment, in that moment of deep dialogue where, where I agree with you, doesn't necessarily mean I'm shifting my core values or, or what I might believe, but what it's actually doing is that it's opening my mind to the possibility of the other. And when we get to a position where we are open to the possibility of the other, we, we lean into to diversity being our strength and, and the value that, that it brings. So I want to continue down this, 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 this line of, of school voice and aspiration. And so much of the work of the Quali Institute over 30 years now has, has been around collecting the necessary data uh, of, that, of that school voice. Data from half a million or so students shows when students have a voice, they are three times more likely to experience self-worth in school, five times more likely to be engaged in school, and five times more likely to have a sense of purpose in the school. This is your research. This is data that has been accumulated over a substantial amount of time, a longitude data. It is clear that when students have voice, they have more meaningful learning experiences. That goes without question. What I'm interested in is around this then empowerment piece. For each and every child, what does that actually look like, Lisa, in practice? In the year nine class on a Friday afternoon, the history class, you know, uh, what does that look like? What does it look like for the year seven class, you know, where the students are being exposed to, to the visual arts for the very first time and being introduced to some great masters? What does it look like in, in a health and physical education class where it's all about my PB and how I'm going to be better than I was yesterday on the track? What does this empowerment piece look like in practice when we when we allow young people the permission to step into the agency of their voice? So I think the biggest thing that it looks like is them saying what it looks like instead of me saying what it looks like. And and that that is so hard to do, especially I will self-confess, I am a control freak. I mean, I love to plan a great lesson from start to finish. I love to be able to control every variable that I possibly can. So it's hard to step into the unknown, especially at the beginning of doing this work and say, all right, I'm going to do a gradual release to students and ask them that question. What would it really look like to you to have the agency of your own action and decision as a co-owner of your life and of your learning in schools. All right. So I'll, I'll follow it up in this way because yeah. I, I, I love that. I love that that we are inviting them into shaping what that learning experience is ultimately going to look like. And it's going to, of course, be different for every individual and it's very nuanced and that, and then that respects the inherent dignity of all in our communities. I, I love the aspiration of that. Mm-hmm. So for a young person to feel safe enough to actually make that type of contribution and maybe even challenge status quo, what are the school structures or the environments or practices that best foster young people to step into their voice and agency? Yeah. 
the very first thing, and our, our research shows very clearly that this is the starting point for this work of really making a place where voice can thrive uh, and be so, we call it an, a way of being. We are after voice being a natural way of being in school so that it isn't like, all right, here's student voice time for the first 15 minutes of the day where we check in with you and give you a chance to speak. And then it's back to business as usual where things are mostly adult directed for then the rest of the day. Um, now, sometimes schools will start that way with some very intentional time set aside, but Ultimately, what we are after is that student voice is infused throughout every aspect of the day from start to finish in a very natural way. Um, so that's that's what we are we are definitely after. But there's a lot of things that have to happen in order for that to be so. The starting place for us is always belonging. And I've heard you guys speak to that a number of times as well. We describe belonging about knowing that you are important to the community while also being recognized and celebrated as an individual. So sometimes belonging can be so much about belonging to the group that a student will feel stripped of their individuality. So they will feel like in order to belong to the group, I have to give up who I am as an individual to make sure that I fit in and that I'm doing all the right things. And we're trying to really flip that and say, you are an incredible, unique individual human with awesome gifts and talents. Your voice has something to offer that nobody else does. And the best way that you can belong to our community is by bringing all of that cool individuality and using your voice to then strengthen the collective. So belonging is always the place that we start. Someone is not going to feel safe and confident in using their voice, in accepting their their role as part of that collective if they don't feel safe and if they don't know that they belong. And it's, it's not limited to just a really nice DEI statement either, right? It's got to Correct. be lived and it's got to be and it's got to feel authentic and, they, and they've got to be able to step into they've got to actually be able to feel that they belong and that without fear of being uh, having injustice against them or people judging them, they should be able to speak freely about who they are ultimately um, because yes. we're always richer from those experiences. Thank you. Sorry, yeah. I know Phil wants to yeah. jump in. Could I go, one go ahead, Lisa. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yes. just add one more thing. Another um, great starting point is to really think about this whole concept of do the adults in a school truly believe that they have something to learn from students? We've done more focus groups than I can possibly count. And that's something that always has such a profound impact on students is when they can articulate that adults in the school believe that they can learn something from them, whether it's related to content or just their perspectives about school culture or just anything in general. But that definitely elevates voice and uh, to a whole new level when the students believe that adults want to hear from them and are open to learning from their perspective. That openness that you talk about, Lisa, let's let's just dig into that for a moment because whether it's all of the amazing things that you're, you're, you're sharing with us today about how to create a culture in which students are exercising their democratic right to participate as, as co-contributors, as co-authors of the story of what is going on rather than having school done to them by adults. It could be that. It could be the use of technology and creating digital fluency in a school. It could be thinking about the capabilities that students need to learn, lead, live and work in a manner that they can thrive in the world rather than just more curriculum stuff. It could be anything that we're trying to do to change the game of school. It all comes down to adult behaviours and the dispositions that fuel the adult behaviours. If adults want to do this stuff, then it will happen in a school. If adults don't want to do this stuff, then it won't happen in a school. We spent 30 years trying to put technology into classrooms and have 
you know, grumpy people tell us it couldn't possibly be done and we didn't have time and this and that and the other pandemic hit and it was done in a week. Of course, we could have done it. We just needed to want to do it and go on that journey where we step into the space of our, of our conscious incompetence and then play with it until we develop the adaptive expertise and self-efficacy we need to do that. So what have you learned about helping adults to shift the dispositions that help them to adopt different behaviours that will allow them to embrace this openness, this willingness to engage with students as the co-authors of the story? Man, we have spent so much time and so many years trying to figure out what is that key, like you're talking about, that will cause that shift in adult desire to make a change. And I don't think we're adverse to change because we're bad people. I find by and large educators genuinely care about their schools and their students so much. They want to do right by them. They feel that the stakes are high and they are. And, and so that I think often what's behind this perceived unwillingness to change is, is fear, fear of, will this actually be a good result? What I've settled on, what we have settled on as an institute is that the biggest thing we can do to create that shift and willingness to change is let me give you one example of what it is like to experience school in partnership with students. And it will be so much more engaging, so fun, and have such great results that then you're going to crave and want to try it again and try it again and try it again until then we can't imagine going back to the old way of being. So we can do a thousand PowerPoints. We can provide all the great websites and resources on the planet around this work. But what it's really going to take is structuring, just jumping in and structuring, even if it's a one hour experience where you are doing a co-construction activity side by side with students, whether it's looking at data, we look at data all the time side by side as adults or side by side with students. We are so good at looking at data by ourselves as grownups. It is a whole different ballgame when we sit side by side and look at data with students. Um, if it's co-constructing one lesson, you mentioned technology. So taking a teacher that's really struggling and not super pumped about trying something new co-construct a lesson in partnership with the student. And it's just whatever that one experience is of really meaningfully partnering with students, then that becomes what gets the ball rolling to be interested in doing a little more and a little more and a little more. Yeah, that's really, really beautiful for you to share us that if we attempt to find opportunities to show them the way or model some practices uh, that continue to yield really positive outcomes and invite them into those spaces to iterate and trial, you know, the pressure is different instead of then saying that you must do it. And we, we also, and I, I fully agree with you around the fact that I, I feel our educators are, are deeply committed to, to the young people, but, but many of them know what they know and, and they deliver the way they've always delivered. And, and they're hardwired to lots of legacy pieces, some of which have great value, some we should simply abandon. I mean, if they have low impact, no impact or negative impact, why do we continue to do, to, to do some of these practices? So I want to talk a little bit more now around why we do certain things in schools. A school's community's ability to kind of clearly make a case for embedded and emerging practices in ways that align to their beliefs about what learning is and their deepest values and commitments to children is critical to kind of creating experiences that will ultimately ensure students thrive in their, in their future. How can leaders within schools build a more authentic view of assessment and measure 
what actually matters in schools? I would go back to, I think we can't do that by ourselves. I think we have to engage and partner with students in that endeavor. Now, of course, there are certain aspects of that that needs to be done and front-loaded by the adults in the systems. Um, But I think the assessments that I have seen that I find to be the most robust, the most on the mark at really uh, assessing mastery of content, not just did I memorize a few facts, and the ones that really led to the most increased engagement in the process of learning overall, not just as an event of assessment, were ones that were done in partnership between students and, and adults. I think though it's really important to say that this type of partnership work can't just happen by you know somebody listening to this, for example, and saying, okay, let's do it. And we throw a bunch of grownups and a bunch of students into a room together and say, create an assessment. <laughs> and we have to really think thoughtfully about how we scaffold into that. We have a bunch of lessons and things that we do to really prepare adults and students to partner with one another. Um, Because we see this, if we go from one extreme of mostly adults controlling the system to then just saying, all right, we listen to you, we'll throw it out and students get after it. None of us are prepared for that, the students or the adults. So there has to be this really intentional process that comes first of teaching both sides. What does it mean to be an effective partner? What are the things that are more appropriate for adults to do in isolation? And then I think the key part becomes, and what is it that we currently only own as adults that we could invite students to co-own with us? So within assessment, for example, I'll give you one very specific example. Rubrics have, have been the rage for a, a while. And you know, I have my, my youngest is a senior. She brings home a rubric for every single assignment that she does. And she has no idea what any of the columns mean in any of those rubrics Um, because there's not been discussion about it. There's not been co-construction that has created with students. Now on one extreme, there is no way there is time in the schedule for every rubric to be co-created from scratch in partnership with students. But I love seeing the practice when teachers They do a first draft of the rubric, and then they spend even five minutes talking through it with their students, saying, here's what I was thinking. How do you interpret this? What's missing? What could be added? And just that moment of conversation changes the whole effectiveness of that particular rubric that is looking to grade mastery. Because if the teacher understands it, but the students don't, it's there's a mismatch where where we have that gap in the middle. Um, So those are the types of practices that we're after. How can we prepare students to really partner effectively with teachers? How can we give guidance that's meaningful and support teachers and adults and systems to really take on student voice and students as critical partners in every aspect of school, including assessment? So Lisa, I want to take you right back to the start from that point that you just mentioned about assessment practice, because what you're talking about, there isn't rocket science. You know, it's common sense you know do you just throw a rubric at a kid and say here go and work it out yourself or do you sit and work with kids over time do you spiral the rubrics so they build on the previous one so do you build the competency to understand how to evaluate yourself in your own work and then how to prepare and all of those sorts of things this is the stuff that i was privileged to be working with with a with with an awesome team of teachers back at uh school called St. Catherine's in Waverley in Sydney in the 1990s under the incredible Joe Rollis, who was our principal. We, you know, we did awesome work around this sort of stuff. That's 25 years ago. One of the things that Adriano and I observed just last weekend 
we were invited to speak at uh, the reimagined 22 conference held at the Woodley Institute by one of the, another Game Changer guest, Richard Owens, uh, Dr. Richard Owens, um, coordinator on behalf of Woodley School, brought together about 100 people from all over Australia and some internationals as well to, to think about what it looks like to reimagine education and reinvent the game and change the game and all of that sort of thing. And what became clear by the end is that there are a thousand flowers blooming all over thinking about this. But if we're going to go from one classroom to every classroom, then somehow we have to find a way to stop reinventing the wheel, to stop individual flowers blooming and find a way to share this practice so that we can we can move the profession forward. Final question for you, therefore, what have you learned about going from one classroom to every classroom? So first of all, before I directly answer that question, you were talking about uh, this is just common sense and I couldn't agree more. Um, one of the great quotes by Dr. Russ Qualia that I just love is he says, often common sense is trumped by common practice. <laughs> and that just always really resonates with me thinking about, yes, this is common sense when you're sitting with one student or a class of students. And yet it's our common practices, as you were saying, the things that we just keep doing over and over because they've historically been done that often trump that that common sense in the moment or in, in today's time. Love the flower analogy that you gave in figuring out how to go from the one classroom to the many classrooms. One of the aspects of our work that we are engaged in trying to contribute to that type of model is what we call schools of action. So we have these schools of action all around the world that are places where they have really taken hold of this work in a very meaningful way. They're doing innovative things. They're moving towards that way of being that I spoke of earlier, where student voice is just so naturally infused in everything that they're doing. Students are part of interview committees. Students are part of making very important decisions, including how school budget is used in some cases. Students are part of determining what they're going to be learning and, and what the calendar and scheduling will look like. They're involved in co-teaching lessons and, and self-assessment and, and so on and so on. So we identify these schools of action and the idea is almost kind of like the art gallery model. You know, a, an artist paints something fantastic, but they don't just keep it in their in their their studio for them to enjoy by themselves. They put it on display so that others can see it and be inspired and and then create artwork of their own. And so the idea with our schools of action is that they are then putting their practice on display for others to see so that. Not so that they then replicate it exactly like that in their school, but so they can get inspired by amazing practice and then figure out how does that fit with the unique DNA of our school and how can we make that so. So we have um, a lot on our website. We have a whole section called showcasing schools. We have another section called case studies where schools are constantly putting their practice on display. Um, and then we love the whole the whole tour study concept. So I'm actually headed over to Australia day after tomorrow, and so we'll be doing several study tours where we're bringing groups of interested educators to sites in Australia, to school campuses, where they are doing amazing things, to walk through and look, talk to students, see what it looks like, talk to teachers, letting them share, share their story. You know, we do a lot of research, we do a lot of writing, but I think that's a thousand times more powerful when you can go into a school and talk to both the students and the teachers who are doing the work and seeing what, what it looks like firsthand. So I think that's one of the ways that we're going to go from just a few flowers to, you know, to it covering the world. 
Yeah, so it's all about those circles of influence, isn't it? That that network effect in and around. Lisa, yeah. I, you, you are right. We could talk all day, but we can't. <laughs> um, thank you so much for being on Game Changers. Thank you for sharing your energy and your enthusiasm, sharing your wisdom and your knowledge, and for being such a wonderful example of uh, how to take the big step forward and up. Thank you. Okay, but before we end, you told me when we started that I could ask you guys questions. And I do have a question that I want to ask before we wrap up. Yeah, go, sure, for go ahead. <clears throat> I, so we talk about hopes and dreams, you know, and what we hope and dream for our students and for our schools and our profession. And I would just love to hear what are your hopes and dreams for Student Voice uh, in Australia and around the globe? We believe very strongly that if you feel as though you belong, you're more likely to fulfill your potential. And that if you feel as though you belong and are achieving your potential, then you're much more likely to go out into the world and do good and right things. We want more kids. We want every kid to be in a position that as a, as a, as a young person in the world, they can thrive, that they've got the knowledge, the skills, the dispositions and the habits to learn, live, lead and work with success, that they've got all of the capabilities that go with being good people and future builders of continuous learners and unlearners of, of, of solution architects and responsible citizens and team creators. Our hope is that we can create schools for tomorrow, that we've got schools built on these premises of permissioning students to find their voice, their agency and their advocacy so that they can truly feel as though they belong. They can fulfill their potential and they can go and do good and right in the world. I think that's what we want. What do you reckon, Avika? Look, I, I fully agree, my friend. I mean, that's just directly off the A School for Tomorrow hymn sheet, uh, you know, about what our aspirations are going forward. If I can, if I can pair that back into, into a very simple construct, and that is something that we talk about often on this show and that Phil and I uh, often talk about in our epilogue series, and that is our aspiration is simple. If the adults in our schools understand that everyone in our learning communities is home to a life and each each life brings its own rich story of lived experience and circumstance if we are deeply conscious about that construct that everyone is home to a life including us as the adults in the schools i feel it's the game changer to shift our aspiration of of, of how we do what we do and uh, i i continue to remain really optimistic when we encounter people like you, Lisa, who is walking it and engaging uh, people with evidence and research and then lived practice. And the more and more that we continue to see this lived practice come alive, the more and more I remain deeply hopeful and optimistic that we can do this together. If we are serious about heroing the notion that everyone is home to a unique life, then we are deeply conscious that we have to personalise what we're doing in our endeavours to help them ultimately thrive. Wow, beautifully said. Well, I just want to give you both such a genuine huge thanks for the work that you're doing, for creating these conversations in a, a space where our thinking can be stretched. And I'm really inspired by the work that you do and have appreciated the opportunity to be part of the conversation. Thank you so much. Game Changers is a podcast for those who want to change the game of school. Produced by Oliver Cummins for Orbital Productions and powered by a school for tomorrow, Game Changers is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play and SoundCloud. Tell your friends and don't forget to subscribe. Let's go.